Ivy Joeva, and this is Future of Food. Over this season of Future of Food, we've talked about becoming more aware of how your food is grown, where it comes from, and why you might want to plant your own garden, even if just on your porch. Rebecca Webster is a member of the Oneida Nation in the eastern part of Wisconsin. Along with her husband and two teenage daughters, she farms 10 acres of land. They grow heirloom indigenous seeds, focusing on the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. In these pandemic times, she's helped members of her tribal community reconnect with their past. The philosophy behind her work is that every time an indigenous person plants a seed, it's an act of resistance and an assertion of sovereignty. Here's my conversation with Becky. Becky, thanks so much for being with us today on Future of Food. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So you and your husband own 10 acres of land on the reservation. Tell me how to pronounce this because I've read the word, but I want to make sure we're getting it right. It means our foods where we plant things. Oh, wow, that is so powerful. Tell us a little bit about the meaning behind that. So um, our goal for this, for our property, is to be able to continue to grow our traditional heirloom indigenous seeds with a focus on Haudenosaunee varieties of corns, beans, squash, and also um, growing sunflowers and tobacco here. So we want to be able to be another resource for individuals to be able to come to learn how to do that, to learn about our seeds, to reconnect with our past, and also so that they can take those seeds and they can garden at home. We want them to be able to grow their own foods at their own home. And then once they do that, to be able to understand how to harvest and how to process, how to preserve, how to do all of those things. So when we were getting ready to um, get our our operation up and running, we had met with one of the Oneida Faith Keepers and told him about our plan. And he in turn gave us the name, um, because it's about more than just putting a seed in the ground, it's about planting something. It's about planting an idea, about planting a way of life and a way to reconnect with our history. So um, the philosophy is that every time an indigenous person plants a seed, that is an act of resistance and an assertion of sovereignty. So we want to be able to assert ourselves that we're still here and that we're going to continue to be here in a way that we can celebrate our culture and our ways. Oh, wow. So powerful. I'm almost speechless. <laughs> That's really powerful. So how many people are involved in your co-op currently? So in our co-op, we're also part of a co-op that's called Ohilagu, which means among the corn stalks. So there's about 10 families in there, and we have all generations in there. We have kids, we have adults, we have grandparents in there. So it's a way for us all to come together to be able to plant our corn together. Um, we hand uh, weed the fields, we hand harvest the heel fields and we get together during that harvest time to um, harvest our corn. This year we're also growing beans and squash together so that'll be a whole nother experience to see how that goes. It's going to be a little bit tricky with the current pandemic because the way that we do our harvest is we come together as groups of families uh, to share stories and to share food and to share in the work of the harvest. So we're going to have to try to get creative on how to do that safely. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. How is COVID affecting this process? Because so many people are afraid to even gather at all right now. 
Yeah, so um, COVID started to impact us this spring when we were wanting to get together with people to be able to share our seeds with them. Um, we had planned on helping people with their gardens and um, offering a little bit more one-on-one -on -one support with people. But um, since the pandemic happened and, and we, especially early on, we really didn't know what was happening, but there was um, a lot of people in our community who had never grown our foods before that were becoming really interested in growing our heirloom traditional indigenous seeds. So um, we packaged up some of our harvest from last year. Um, we had packets of different varieties of corn, beans, uh, squash, and sunflowers, and we had social distance porch trades. So what we mm -hmm. did is um, if people contacted us saying, hey, I'd like to have, you know, a pack of each for the three sisters to grow them together, um, they would come and if they had, you know, a jar of jam or some honey or we even one of them was really excellent. They brought over an elk roast. So we did these. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we did these trades with um, people where we left the seeds out on the porch and they would come up and um, drop off their goods and pick up the seeds and go. So um, I know a lot of other people say that there shouldn't be a, a cost to the seeds, but we, we think that it's not quite appropriate to sell them for a dollar amount. But yet by asking for something in trade, even if they don't have anything, we ask that they commit to share their seeds with somebody else in the future. And the reason is that we think that our seeds have value they have a huge responsibility, especially in these times, to be able to carry us through into the future. So we want them to know that that they are very important. And also to recognize that work that goes into seed saving and um, growing our foods in the first place to be able to make these seeds available. One of the other great things that we like is that people say, well, I don't have anything to trade. And it, it's um, kind of, I think, disempowering when people say that, well, how much is it? Can I just buy it? $5, $10. It's by putting that dollar amount on it that really isn't compatible with our way of thinking. Instead, we say, well, what, what can you do? We, we, can, we can think of different ways that you have value too other than the dollar. So we've traded for things like cutting hair, singing lessons, helping find medicines out in the woods. So I think that's a way to empower those people to let them know that they have value and it's not just something that you're going to measure in a dollar. So then they take those seeds and they grow them at home and um, it's really exciting to see them uh, grow. So I've had some people send me messages, send me videos, and it's pretty exciting to see the updates that, that they're having at their homes, even though we can't physically go out there and visit with them. Yeah, I can see how empowering that would be, especially since they're making that contribution. It's You're really facilitating a real exchange because if we can just pull money out, there's like a, it's, it's less personal. It's less of a community kind of feel. Yeah. A relationship that you're cultivating. You mentioned the three sisters and just for listeners who might not be familiar with the three sisters as bean, corns, and squash. What is the significance behind this, maybe both nutritionally and from the perspective of Native American traditions? Sure. So by eating the corn and beans together, it forms a complex protein. And also by adding the squash in there, it has a lot of flavor 
and the, the, the fats that are in that. So eating those three foods together is a really healthy combination. And they also go back all the way to our creation story. So there's lots of uh, examples of the importance of the three sisters throughout our story and our history. If you look at when you plant them together, we plant them in mounds. And the corn grows tall and strong and forms the basis for our sustenance. The beans uh, use the corn as a... Uh, to climb up the stalk, and the beans provide nitrogen to the soil. The squash, which I happen to think is one of the most underrated um, of the three sisters, really does uh, triple duty. I think she covers the ground to keep the moisture in the soil. She also keeps the weeds down, and she keeps the animals out because of her prickly stems and leaves. So the animals don't like to come into the field to snack on our food. Wow. What a cool design. It's like we couldn't have even, we couldn't have thought of that. Humans couldn't have come up with that. Yeah, every time when we're out in our, our three sisters' fields, um, we're just amazed that our ancestors were geniuses. It's pretty exciting mm. to see that. Mm. So cool. So speaking of your ancestors, your ancestors from the Oneida Nation originally migrated to the Wisconsin area from New York. Is that the case? Yeah, so um, we're part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So we have the um, the Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, Mohawk, and the Tuscarora. We historically lived in what is now the state of New York. And in the early 1800s, after the devastating losses that our whole Confederacy suffered through the Revolutionary War and the land losses from illegal treaties with the state of New York, um, and also the influence of um, alcoholism, we had decided that we really didn't have any other choice because we were landless, essentially, in what's now the state of New York. So we followed some Christian missionaries here to the state of Wisconsin. The original understanding was that the rest of the Confederacy was going to come with us, but some we were the first to come, and along the way... Um, it's, it's a whole nother side story, but there were some unscrupulous deals going on and the rest of the Confederacy decided that they weren't going to come with us. So now the Oneida people, we're kind of alone here in Wisconsin, um, separated from the rest of our, our, our sister tribes out in New York. So, um, we try to maintain the ties as close as we can, but it's pretty difficult when they're so far away. Yeah. That makes total sense, especially in a time like right now when nobody's really, it's not a great idea to be traveling. Right. So within the past few years, we've made a number of trips out there and formed some really great relationships with some growers out east who have been very generous with sharing seeds with us. And we've been growing them for a number of years here in Oneida at home, and we're able to share those with the community. So is that how seed saving in your... Um, community actually began was from bringing it from the tribes who are living in the New York area? Sure. When we migrated here from what uh, what was to become the state of New York, we did carry seeds with us because when we landed here in, um, in our current homeland, we did plant seeds right away. We were able to t- work up some of the land and be able to resume our agricultural ways that we had in the state of New York but we don't know what seeds we brought with us. That's something I'm still trying to research and trying to find out. But we did grow our foods and we had our seeds and we saved those seeds and passed them down from generation to generation. But as time went on 
And as assimilation efforts from the federal government kept going with, you know, the boarding school era, and then our lands were taken again once we were here in Wisconsin, um, we didn't have a whole lot of those seeds anymore. So I'd say starting in the 70s, uh, some people here from Oneida started to go back out east with the express purpose of bringing some seeds back. There were always families, um, and this is something that we can't overlook and make it sound like it went away is there were families here that continued to grow our foods since we came here. It's just that it wasn't as common as it was before and not everybody knew how to get those seeds or um, sometimes people didn't tell each other about them because of the shame that went along with their identities. So right now I think we're in a time where um, being indigenous is pretty cool where um, it's a good it's a good day to be indigenous. So we're able to celebrate our culture the way that we weren't able to even just a generation ago. So with that, we're being able to be more open about our ceremonies, our language, and our seed keeping and seed sharing. So we've been able to take some of those seeds from out east and bring them back here to create a vibrant community of seeds and a diversity of seeds that we may not have seen since we've moved here. Well, that is really great to hear that you feel like it's a good time to be celebrating. Um, I would love to hear about what you think, what you see as the contributing factors to that, because that's, that's really great news. Yeah, I think it, it you know, in the 60s and 70s with um, AIM folks, um, just diff- there was a different movement about wanting to reconnect to our culture. There was, there was a, a movement throughout the United States of different tribes and different communities, again, being able to practice their cultures and their ceremonies without having to be underground with with it. And um, I think we're still riding the waves of that. And um, even I'm not quite that old. I'm in my 40s. But growing up here, there weren't these same opportunities that there are today. I grew up right down the road from the longhouse. And I wasn't allowed to go there. The Longhouse is a place where we practice our ceremonies. So we come together and celebrate all of creation and give thanks for all of creation. So that was a bit um, a bit hard because I wanted to learn more about our culture. I wanted to learn more about that. But there was still some residual shame, I would say, in our family about our culture and the idea that um, you're going to get punished or it's not okay or just any of the different things that may have been left over from my grandparents' generation. So, but now uh, my husband and I have two daughters, they're teenagers, and they've grown up learning our songs, learning our language, going to ceremonies, um, and also out in the garden, helping with the plants, um, being, being a big part of the harvest time, and cooking and preserving our foods. So that's, those are experiences that are now a normal way of life for them that we didn't have when we were growing up. Beautiful. I can really hear how this kind of revival of reclaiming your identity has gone hand in hand with seed saving and and really becoming food sovereign in that way. Yeah, and we're pretty excited about it. So um, we don't live on a very busy road, but um, we plant most of our foods up front in the road, right by the road. 
in the in the front yard. So as people are driving by, my daughters are so embarrassed by it though. But cars will drive by really, really slow to be able to see our um, three sisters' gardens out there and our other um, hybrid type gardens that we have out in the front. So we have a lot of people in the community that just drive by on purpose so that they could check out the progress. So I think it's pretty exciting. We're doing that because we're asserting that we're still here and we're proud of these foods. And we're excited that these foods are being able to be celebrated, um, especially during these times. Absolutely. I'm surprised your daughters aren't proud. I'm surprised they don't feel like they live on the they are. cool house. <laughs> they are. They're just embarrassed when people drive by. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be interesting to see if that changes as they get older and they realize how cool it really is. Yeah. <laughs> to have a fan club driving by. Right? <laughs> yeah. So for listeners who might not be familiar with the concept of seed saving, can, can you talk about just what that exactly means and how people can do it? Sure. So we save the seeds from the foods that we grow. Um, like, so for example, the corn, we would go out there in the fields when it's getting close to harvest time and we would keep an eye on those stalks that have the qualities that we would like and we can mark them or just make note of them. And then when it comes time for harvest time, um, we will go out there and select those cobs that we think are going to be the most suitable for the next generations. And then we bring those um, inside and we pull the husks off and then we kind of rate them to see whether or not they really are really good seed quality cobs. So like for our Haudenosaunee corn, um, they want eight straight rows, um, preferably um, uniform color, unless it's a calico type of a corn. We don't want it to have any dents in it if it's not supposed to, because these are all signs that they've been crossed with some GMO corn from the neighboring fields, which is something uh-huh. that we have to be very careful of, because once that's in your corn, it's not going to come out. So we have to be very careful about selecting our seed that way. And then when we do have a cob of corn that's suitable, um, we take those and we braid them up separately into a seed braid, and we hang that to dry. And then when it comes time um, that it has dried out enough, we only take the corn from the very middle. Like if you put your hand over the cob of corn in the middle, those seeds that are underneath your hand are the ones that we'll keep for seed. So those are the best pieces, uh, best kernels out of that cob. So it's it's not just um, when somebody hands you a packet of seed grade corn, it's not just some random corn from somewhere. A lot of thought and effort went into making sure that that seed is going to produce the best corn for the following generations. Beautiful. And that's so revolutionary right now, too, because we're learning about farmers all across the country that have been subject to these patent laws that Monsanto has taken advantage of, where if GMO um, seeds get crossed with a farmer's corn, then Monsanto can basically sue a farmer and claim ownership of that crop. Yeah, I think the whole practice is actually um, kind of disgusting because it really um, takes something that we believe is so sacred and commodifies it and um, manipulates it and um, claims ownership of it. And these are all things that are just not culturally appropriate for us to be doing. And then also it's extra frustrating when 
Literally across the street from us, there's a farmer that's growing this kind of corn. I suppose, fortunately, he's east of us and the wind blows from west to east. But still, we have to be very careful about that corn coming into our corn. The pollen from there. He's growing GMO corn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as as an attorney, I am, I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, obviously, it's, it is disgusting from a, a social perspective, but from a legal perspective, it just blows my mind that that could even be allowed, that you could claim ownership yeah. <laughs> because of something that nature does. Right. And, and also, too, um, there's, in, in the indigenous seed keeping community, there's always concerns that they're going to come and patent our seeds, which how do we um, demonstrate that we have been growing these seeds since creation? It's just very frustrating to think that we would even have to prove that or that somebody would be able to do that and come and, and claim ownership over something that has been so sacred to us since time immemorial. Yeah, it's, it's a very disturbing notion. Um, and it, it, it feels hopeful that more and more people in your community are, it sounds like COVID has kind of increased the prevalence of people jumping on this train. Yeah, yeah, it really has. And I think we've um, shared with over 20 families in the community uh, seed packets, and most of them never grew our foods before. So they were first time growers, which is really exciting because um, they're realizing that, you know, they kind of mentioned, I kind of always wanted to do it, but it seems like now's the time to figure this out. So it's really exciting to see that they're wanting to get into this and wanting to reestablish that relationship with our three sisters. That is so exciting. I mean, for, for everyone's health, for everyone's sovereignty, and like you said, for identity, that's really huge. What are some of the stories you've heard people come back and share about their successes with this, Well, how it's changed their lives? It's still um, the, about the middle of the season. So right now it's all just a learning experience. So I have um, one friend in particular who will send me videos of his beans growing. So it's kind of... <laughs> it, it, I bet that makes great television. <laughs> it does. His commentary is pretty hilarious. Like, whoa, look at these. <laughs> so so he's pretty excited that um, that they're they're doing really well in his yard. So um, that was pretty wow. exciting. And another um, another friend is um, giving me updates and progress reports. Um, but it was sad sometimes to hear, oh, my gosh, a windstorm came by and knocked all my corn down. What do I do? And then it was kind of neat to be able to be in a position where I could respond with, it's okay. Don't worry. Here's some options. You know, in general, the corn will stand back up again. But if you're a little nervous about it, here's what you can do to help her along. So um, it was nice to be able to be in a position to help people when I feel like I'm still learning so much and I have so much to learn yet. Mm. Well, you're the best kind of leader with that attitude. And they're so lucky to have you as a guide in this process. Yeah. And at the same time, it's funny. So I have some seed mentors myself. And um, it's funny that like just a few hours before she sent me that email and I go out into one of my gardens and I see something funny going on with the bean leaves and I send them a message right away. Oh my gosh, something's happening with my beans. What's going on? And and they were reply, it's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's this whole network of people being able to help each other in this learning process to reconnect. Mm. 
And, you know, it's so good for, we're learning on Future of Food how important this is for the actual land as well, because so many of our growing practices today have actually stripped the soil of nutrients, and the kind of farming that you're talking about is actually putting nutrients back into the soil. Yeah, so the land that we purchased a few years ago had been cash cropped before, and the soil was depleted and damaged. So we had a couple different soil tests, and the results were pretty much your soil is terrible. Um, it was really low in, in all of the different um, nutrients that you wanted to see in the soil. So we're doing some things like using our um, fish. We put the fi whole fish into the mounds, and that restores a lot of the nutrients to the plants. But also growing the beans themselves helps the soil and we're doing a lot of composting, and we're using fish emulsion. So even though our soil is very poor and our plants aren't as luscious as they probably would be with healthier soil, the, the idea that they're still producing it all for us is pretty exciting. And at this point, we're not necessarily growing for volumes of food. We're growing for a variety of seed, and the land is being able to do that for us, knowing that we're going to take those seeds and share them with people. Beautiful. And over time, it sounds like the soil will regenerate because just what you're doing is so beneficial. Yeah. And there's historical records show that our mounds that we use, if we take care of them properly by putting fish in them um, in the spring and also composting on top of them after harvest, that you can use the same mounds for 20 years or more. So it's not depleting wow. the soil at all. It's actually uh, very beneficial to the soil. And so when you harvest typically there's there's more than you can eat at that time right so what are the what are some of the ways how do you handle this when the when i believe where you are in wisconsin when it's not growing season there's not really much you can do with the land yeah historically most of our food was dried so like our corn at harvest time um, we do wait till she dries out in the field quite a bit and the cobs themselves will tip over and that'll let us know that they're ready to be picked We'll peel off all husks except for maybe three, and then we'll lop off the end, and then we'll braid it like, like hair, like a French braid, into long braids. And then we hang them up for a few months, either in a barn or a garage or somewhere, until they're dried out. And then you can keep them for years and years after that point. The same thing with the beans. We'll let the beans dry out in the field on the, the plants and then we'll harvest them when their um, outsides are, are papery. And then those beans also, years and years, you can keep those beans. Um, the squash, uh, this is something pretty cool that we're starting to learn how different ways how to dry our squash. So last year we took uh, some of our harvest and we cut the squash into sli long slices and we dried them a bit. And then we made braids out of those slice slices of squash and then dried that mm. even more. So Historically, our ancestors dried all kinds of fruits, nuts, and berries, and even fish and meats. So um, a lot of that would be, you know, throughout the house in the winter time um, stored there so that you could have that food at any time without having to worry about, you know, it being the middle of winter. You can still have these foods all year round. So cool. So it's pretty self-explanatory with like corn and beans, how we know how you cook dried beans, you can make flour out of corn and do various things with it. What about drying squash? What do you do when the squash is dried? How do you then make that something that you can consume? So you can, one of the most common ways is to put it in soup. 
Um, it's just like right. a regular dried vegetable. One of the ways that we've been experimenting with at home is in a, um, a, a casserole dish, I suppose, made of wild rice and like venison hamburger and um, some maybe some cream of mushroom soup or something like that. Maybe some mushrooms. And then we'll throw in the dried squash and it will soak up those flavors and it'll it, it'll it just gives a nice contrast to that that dish. So cool. It's like it it reminds me of art what you're talking about. It's like really culinary art. Yeah, yeah, it's fun stuff to experiment with with our foods and they just give us a flavor that you weren't really expecting but you're glad it's there. I'd love to hear a little bit just about life on the reservation in general in the community. I I know you said there is a revival going on which is so great to hear. But I guess I'm curious like both pre-pandemic and then now with the threat of the pandemic what what is it like there? I guess it's kind of quiet. I don't we don't really leave that much. Um so even before the pandemic, so I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin or University of Minnesota Duluth and I teach primarily online. So I work from home quite a bit and my husband homeschools our daughters and works on on the farm here. So we didn't have to leave as much as other people do with with office jobs or, or different places that they have to go to work. But I think this pandemic, even though it's forcing us to stay at home um, and not be as social as we wanted to be, I think it's allowing people to um, really reflect on what's important to them and um, get maybe reestablish their priorities. So, um, but that's not to say that there aren't a lot of families in our community that have lost their jobs and are really stressed out during these times. So I do have um, friends and family who are in that situation, and I, I can't imagine what that must be like for them to be in a situation where they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if they're going to be called back to work or when they're, they're going to get their, um, a, a different job. They don't know whether or not they should look for a different job or hope that the other job calls them back eventually. So there's a, a lot of uncertainty right now in the community. So it's it's... It can be a a time for reflection for some people who are privileged enough to not have to have those worries. But for those people that have those worries, it's a very serious, life-changing event that's happening to them. Yeah, that really reflects, it sounds like, just kind of the state of Americans in general in this country of just, you know, it, it has provided this pause for us to reflect and at the same time for people who are having their livelihoods threatened, it's a really scary time. Yeah. Well, is there anything else I didn't ask that you'd like to share? Well, I think one of the cool things that um, we do here um, in our community is we have what's um, it's called a rites of passage program for kids. It's another one of the things that it wasn't as readily available when I was uh, younger or when my husband was younger. So our daughters are going through this rites of passage where they learn more about um, their roles as young women. And of course, the boys will learn their roles as as young men. And in the springtime of their program, they plant what's called a Mother Earth Garden. And that's part, It's they, they do that in recreating part of the creation story. And so as part of the creation story, we have Sky Woman who was pregnant, falls through a hole from the sky world, um, and eventually falls on to Turtle's back. 
and different animals try to get dirt from the bottom. Muskrat ends up coming up and giving her some dirt, and she includes some seeds and roots that she grabbed while she was falling and combines that with the dirt and um, spreads out the dirt on the turtle's back, and that eventually becomes the earth. Well, she eventually has a daughter, and time passes, and then the daughter becomes pregnant with twins, um, and then it's the left-handed and the right-handed twin. The right-handed twin is born the natural way. The left-handed twin is in a hurry, comes out her side, and kills her. So what ends up happening with this with her body is they 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 bury her and they they mound up the dirt around her body and by her passing she activates those seeds and those roots that were um, her mother had pulled from the sky world when she was on her way down. So the kids the boys form the shape of a woman's body and the girls sing seed songs and plant seeds in her the way that they came up during the creation story. So out of her mind comes tobacco, out of her breasts comes the corn, out of her um, fingers comes the beans, out of her stomach comes the squash, out of her heart comes the strawberries, and out of her feet comes the potatoes. So there's different variations in different communities about different plants and where they come from, but that's how, how we do it here. So, and it's interesting to see the kids uh, come back and check on the Mother Earth Garden over the course of the summer to see how how she's progressing. So um, we do that here at our property and we host that for the the kids to be able to do that and create a place where we know that she'll be uh, watched over. So this year we didn't get to do that because of the pandemic. So it was pretty sad. Um, We hope to be able to do that next spring. But I think it's a really great way to teach people and our, especially our kids about our connection and our current connection to our history and our culture and also a way to remember the different parts of the creation story and how our foods are coming from Earth and they're a gift to us and they have a responsibility to sustain us, but that we also have a responsibility to care for them. Mm. I can really see how that would foster a real joy and excitement over planting and harvesting in kids. That's something they'll remember their whole lives. Yeah. What advice would you have for just your average person out there who's curious about the idea of seed saving and starting to grow their own food? I'd say, I'd say just go for it. Just try it because I think our plants are very forgiving. They recognize that we're still learning and um, we're a a pitiful people and we don't really know necessarily everything that we should. But if you give your plants time and attention and the care, I think that they really do respond to us. And and just you'll learn so much year after year of trying this. And it's okay to not know what you're doing. I think that the plants understand and are forgiving. It kind of reminds me of, you know, I work with families for a living as a doula. I support families through the childbearing year. And it kind of reminds me of parenting advice. Like, you know, you're not going to know everything. (laughs) Do your best. (laughs) They're going to be okay. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. How have you, how have, like, what impact have you seen this had on your health and your family's health, just growing more of your own food and eating from your own garden? Well, I think we, um, those foods that we prepare with things that we grow, um, the biggest things we know what's in it. 
So we know that there aren't herbicides or pesticides or preservatives or any of these other unnatural things in our food. And you just feel better after you eat a meal of something that you've grown or harvested yourself. So it's, it's an experience. And um, at the same time, you kind of wonder then how come I don't eat all of my food this way? You know, every once in a while that frozen pizza sure does taste good, but then after you eat it, you feel kind of gross. So I think it's a work in progress. Um, We're trying to incorporate more of our indigenous foods into our daily diet because of the way it does make us feel. So we're working on it. It's so true. I even find the more I just eat local, like at the farmer's market, I, I it actually starts to taste better to me Yeah. than if I have something that's been imported or processed in any way. It doesn't, doesn't quite taste the same. So I guess the key would be being in a community where different people are growing different things and then you can get that variety going on too. Yeah. And when you start to eat those more natural foods, your palate changes. So then it does become more appealing over time. And then, like you said, when you go eat some of that other stuff, like go through a McDonald's drive through it's just, you know, it doesn't really taste good anymore. Like, well, I can't believe that I used to just go crazy for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And what an incredible impact on long-term health to make a change like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Becky. This has been so illuminating and powerful to hear about your journey and how you're supporting both your family and your community. Thank you for being with us today on Future of Food. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Visit us online at futurefood.fm. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and put the power to save the planet on your plate and on your playlist. I'm Ivy Juiva. Future of Food is produced by Lee Schneider, music by Epidemic Sound. We're part of the Future X Podcast Network.